Hi there. One of the shows that we did, I wasn't able to finish the story of Ron DeFeo, which is part of the Amityville horror story. Left a lot of people hanging on that one, so I apologize. But the information that we were talking about at the time of that particular show was so extensive that it actually lends itself to its own multi-part broadcast or podcast or whatever you want to call it. At the time when I was looking up the Ron DeFeo stuff, there was a couple of articles out there that just gave us truncated bits of information, you know, that didn't give us any real definitive facts about what happened, how it happened, why it happened. We just had to assume, you know, what was going on with Ron DeFeo at the time of his parents' murders. So near the end of the show, I came across a really cool website called AmityvilleMurders.com. And they had an extensive story why Ron did what he did, what the whole behind the scenes thing was. And what I mean by behind the scenes is how he grew up, what was the cause of him being the way he was. And I wanted to finish the story. And it's going to be multi-parts because it is a long story. Uh, Ron DeFeo passed away a couple of years back and there's still really no information. He was, he never really told anybody why he did what he did. Um, so his story, this whole entire story will never be complete, unfortunately. So while we're on it, let's start. So Ron DeFeo Sr., he was born in 1930. He was married to Louise Marie Brigante. In 1951, Ron DeFeo Jr. was born. His nickname was Butch. So growing up, Butch had it hard. Uh, he was the firstborn, and as a boy, his father expected more from him. And Big Ron was not afraid to discipline Butch in the cruelest fashion. In one minute, he would hug his son. The next minute, he would throw him across the room. Luis's brother, Michael Brigante Jr., later testified at the DeFeo trial about an incident he witnessed when Butch was two years old, saying, We were all sitting in the basement watching TV, and I don't know, the boy had done something, and all of a sudden, Sr. stood up and pushed the boy into a wall. The boy banged his head or part of his shoulder or something. As a child, Butch was extremely overweight and he would remain so until his teenage years when he began using amphetamines. Butch's school life suffered also because everybody would pick on him, calling him Blob, Bucky Beaver, and Porkchop. But a couple years after he was born, 1956, his mom gave birth to a daughter named Don Teresa DeFeo. A few years later, in 1961, Allison Louise DeFeo was born. And then in 62, Mark Gregory DeFeo was born. Sometime after the birth of Mark, Louise decided to leave her husband, uh, Big Ron, for reasons that still remain unclear. To get his wife back, Big Ron decided to put his writing talents to good use, needing to express his love of his wife. Big Ron co-wrote a song called The Real Thing, and in 1963, jazz great Joe Williams recorded the song for his album titled One is a Lonesome Number. In 1965, Big Ron was blessed with a third son, John Matthew. By this time, the family had moved from their Brooklyn apartment to the affluent Long Island South Shore community of Amityville. It was a mystery how Big Ron could afford such a lavish home on a car dealer's service manager's salary. The answer was clear. His father-in-law, Michael Briganti Sr. In the early 70s, Big Ron decided that he wanted a series of life-size portraits created to immortalize his family. So once more, Big Ron's father-in-law, Michael Sr., picked up the tab, which was about $50,000. 
painstakingly detailed, the portraits took over a year to complete and, upon their completion, the life-size portraits hung in large golden frames on the staircase wall in between the first and second floors of the DeFeo home. It wasn't long after that, in the early evening hours of 1974, November 13th, a bunch of people were hanging out at Henry's Bar, which is located on the corner of Merrick Road and Ocean Avenue in Amityville. Around 6.30 p.m., Ron DeFeo, who's known as Butch, opened the door to the bar and yelled, you gotta help me, I think my mother and father are shot. And one of the guys, Bobby Kelsky, who was an out-of-work brick mason and Butch's best friend, ran over to Bobby, who had fallen to his knees, who's crying hysterically. He pleaded for help. Hey, you gotta help me, Bobby. Somebody shot my mom and dad. And was, you know, are you sure they're not asleep? No, I saw them up there. So Bobby took Butch, and they all went back to Butch's place. Bobby took with him Joe Altieri, Joey Yeswoit, Al Saxton, and William Scordamaglia, who is the owner of Henry's Bar. The six piled into Butch's 70 Blue Buick Electra 225, and Bobby drove back to the house. The house is only a block away. The DeFeo residence was a large, rambling, three-story Dutch colonial home built in 1925. And because the property was long and narrow, the dark shingled house sat sideways with the front door facing the elongated driveway. You've seen the classic pictures of the Amityville house. It's changed now because the current owners got tired of all the the looky-loos and the pictures and whatnot. So they had it changed. The facade is completely different now than it used to be. At the end of the DeFeo's 237-foot-long lot sat their boathouse right at the edge of the Amityville Creek. The most distinguishable characteristic of 112 Ocean Avenue was its dramatic front yard. Overlooking the street were two quarter-moon windows that looked like eyes. It's a common feature on Dutch colonial homes. On the front lawn stood a lamppost with a sign attached that read, High Hopes a symbolic title of the family's life in suburbia. Kneeling behind the sign were three figurines of children praying to a larger statue of St. Joseph holding the baby Jesus. Bobby pulled the car to a quick halt and climbed out. As he approached the front steps, one of the other men cautioned, be careful, somebody might be in there. And Bobby yelled, I don't really care, and he unlocked the door to the DeFeo home. The house was quiet, except for the barking of Shaggy, the DeFeo's sheepdog, who was tied up to the inside of the kitchen's back door. Because the dog was not totally housebroken, the family routinely tied him up there. The interior of the DeFeo home was just as impressive as the exterior. To the right of the marble-covered foyer was the formal dining room with red velvet-textured wallpaper lining the walls. In the center of the room, over the Dutch-style table seating six, hung a crystal chandelier. A textbook belonging to one of Butch's younger siblings sat unopened on the table next to a bouquet of wilting red roses. Across the foyer was the living room. This contained a baby grand piano. In front of the large fireplace was a pair of white satin cushioned chairs. Lavish paintings and statues were scattered throughout the room. It was evident that Bush's parents insisted on the most expensive items for their house. And how they afforded it, well, we all know. With Bobby Kelsky in the lead, the five men hurried up the stairs to the second floor. Bobby, who was a regular visitor to the DeFeo household, knew exactly where the master bedroom was located, and as they reached the second floor, they were overwhelmed with the stench of death. Bobby stopped at the doorway to the master bedroom and hit the light switch. Before him lay Ron Joseph DeFeo Sr. and his wife Louise. A hole in the center of DeFeo Sr.'s bare back was the first indication that the couple was not sleeping. Dried blood had trickled out of the wound, disappearing beneath the obese man's blue boxer shorts. In contrast, 
couldn't tell what type of wounds Luis DeFeo had because her body was buried beneath an orange blanket as if she was protecting herself against the evening chill. Seeing that Bobby was ready to pass out, the other men led him downstairs, past the life-size portraits of family members that hung on the staircase wall. John Altieri remained on the second floor and checked out the northeast bedroom. Clipper ships, cannons, and eagles dotted the room's wallpaper. On the dresser to the left of the door lay several statues and figurines that one would expect to find in a devout Catholic home. Strewn across the floor were athletic shoes and toys, signaling that the bedroom belonged to a boy. Well, two boys to be exact. On the opposite sides of the room lay the bodies of two young boys face down like their parents. In the bed on the left lay the body of John DeFeo, nine. Altieri could not pinpoint the bullet hole in John's back since the Knicks sweatshirt he was wearing was covered in blood. In the other bed lay John's brother, Mark DeFeo. Next to Mark's bed was a pair of crutches and a plain gray wheelchair. The boy had recently suffered a football injury and needed their assistance to get around. At the foot of his bed lay a crumpled up green and yellow bedspread in an orange blanket. This time, Altieri could make out the wound, a single bullet hole in the center of the boy's back. Seeing more than he wanted, Altieri left the room and rejoined the others downstairs where Joe... Yeswoit called 911, giving details to an emergency operator. All right, so that's the end of part one of the Ron DeFeo Jr. story. As you can tell, a lot of drugs are involved. He started doing meth at a young age. He was bullied at school. He had an overbearing and abusive father. These are the catalysts that are going to propel him to do what he's going to do. But it's not really talked about why. You know, it took a lot of, re- I don't want to say research, it took a lot of searching to find out the exact answers as to why Ron did what he did. But there's kind of a weird plot twist to this whole thing. So part two coming up. And again, thank you for listening.